at four o'clock in the morning, he called us. And we answered the phone and he said, Dad, I have a question for you. He says, will a person go to heaven if he commits suicide? First, we thought he should see a counselor. So we did that knowing that medicine wouldn't be given to him, but maybe we could see where he was at spiritually and maybe that would take care of some of these questions he had. But then afterwards, he didn't want to go back. He didn't want to have any more of that. And he thought we were listening in and we were telling this man what to say to him and, and trying to get stuff out of him that he didn't want to share. So he came by the living room and said, Dad, I'm planning to make some changes in my life. In hindsight, I wish I'd have asked him, well, what are your plans? But I didn't ask that. After the third time, I just opened the door and I saw him laying on his bed with his back to me. I said, John, he did it. Hi, this is Dr. Chuck Betters, and I am the president and founder of Mark Inc. Ministries. Mark Inc. Ministries exists to make abundant riches known in the name of Christ. And our desire, our goals, our objectives are very simple. We want to offer help and hope to hurting people. I have with me in the studio here today my wife Sharon and a very special couple we will introduce in just a moment. So Sharon, why don't you tell our listeners about Marking Ministries and why we're doing this particular resource? One of the signature resources we have with Mark Inc. is our series, our audio library that we call Learning to See When the Lights Go Out. And because of our own life journey in the death of our 16-year-old son, Mark, as well as some other uh, life crises, we have recognized the amazing opportunity we have to share with others the help and hope that we have experienced in our own lives. We also recognize that there are hidden pains and our emphasis with this series is to address life crises that are often hidden for whatever reason. They might be long-term issues. They might be crises that carry shame or guilt for whatever reason. There, And we believe that there are the neighbors, our customers, our clients, wherever we are, people are hurting and broken and carrying great sorrow. And so our point in developing these resources is to say, we know that the lights go out in our lives at times, but there is a way to learn to see in the darkness, even if it's just one inch at a time. And so that is our purpose in developing these resources. We have had an opportunity over the years to develop a variety of resources that uh, are dealing with some very sensitive topics and we have others that are in the pipeline. But today, especially, we're going to be dealing with the issue of suicide and, in a broader context, mental illness. Just recently, a famous preacher, famous pastor in this country of ours, lost his own son to suicide. And it was interesting to Sharon and I, as we, we talked about uh, what happened in that particular case how important it was for that pastor not to tell anyone what they were going through in their home, not to tell anyone or speak of the mental illness that had invaded their home, because there is such a stigma attached to it. Sharon, why don't you talk a little bit about that stigma and why we feel it's important for this particular resource to draw out that, that stigma and to deal with it? Well, our resources are faith-based, and we feel that in the faith-based community, as well as beyond it, there is a stigma to mental illness. And especially, though, I think in faith-based communities, there is a, a thinking that, well, we just need to pray about it. And if we have to go to a doctor and we have to take a pill, then we must not be good enough as Christians. Our faith must not be as deep and wide and wonderful as everybody else. And in our own personal lives, when we lost our son, Mark, we experienced such a wrestling with our theology, with God's love. We had questions. And when we began to share transparently our own journey, we found out that we weren't alone. 
that there are many, many people out there who are struggling, but afraid to say that they have questions about the dark places in life. As we've prepared for this life crisis of suicide, we've learned that worldwide, suicide is the 13th leading cause of death, and almost 1 million people every year take their own lives. Now, that's an epidemic, and that's a deep sorrow. And so our purpose with this particular resource is to speak to those who are the survivors, so to speak. Uh, how do you how do you keep on living? Where does the light come from in this darkness? And also perhaps someone who is thinking about suicide that is dealing with mental illness and struggling with, I don't want to take those pills because I should be a better Christian than that, or I should have more strength. We, we want to offer help and hope to that person as well. If you are holding this resource in your hand, you're listening to this resource, more than likely you have an interest in this topic. Either you are personally struggling with mental illness and are looking for help and hope, or you are the family members or friends or relatives of someone who has just recently taken their life. And we want to offer this family how to deal with and how to cope with the issue of mental illness and suicide. So Sharon, why don't you introduce uh, the couple that's standing before us right now and uh, give our audience a little bit of insight as to who they are. I'm so delighted to welcome John and Marion Stevenson to the studio today and so humbled and privileged that they are willing to share their story and trusting us with their story. And I know that they uh, feel the same way we do. This is their story. They're not going to say this is what everybody goes through or experiences or should do. It's their story. We're not trying to produce a resource that has all kinds of medical imp implications. This is simply their story. And so, Marion, thank you so much for being here today. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your family? Thank you, Sharon. And it is a privilege to be here to share our story. I was the youngest of three children, grew up in a Christian home, married at age 22, and we miscarried our first baby. And the doctor told me that I probably would never be able to carry a child. And that was, that was deep. That was hard. But we ended up having five more children. So we're very thankful for that. Our son, Jonathan, that we're going to be speaking of today, mostly, is our second born. He was uh, about 15 months after our firstborn. And in seven years, we had five children. So we were a busy family. I took off from my occupation as a nurse to be a, a mom at home because I thought that was important and it was my first duty is to be the mom. I had lots of joy in that, lots of time with the kids, and never dreamed, never imagined that we would be going through sorrow as I got older. And John, tell us a little bit about yourself. I was the first of five children in my family. I had two brothers and two sisters, and I was raised in Southern California, spent some time on the island of Guam in the Pacific with my parents as they helped a missionary out there. And then in coming to stay with my grandfather in New Jersey uh, is where I met my wife, mm -hmm. which was her hometown. And it was my hometown in a sense that that's where my parents were raised in Vineland, New Jersey. So, John, how long have you been married? That's a tough question. Uh, <laughs> it changes every year. I think it's a 43. It's 44 in a couple of weeks. Oh, so it's 43 officially, but in a couple of weeks it'll be 40. Why is it that men never get that right? Uh, it changes. And it seems like only a couple of years. So it's... Well, we're glad you're here today and we're thankful that you're willing to share your story. And uh, why don't we start with telling us a little bit about, about Jonathan and when you first determined that something was not right? When we first realized it, of course, we, when we look at hindsight, we see that there were other signs. His first college that he went to, he, he essentially dropped out of, although he completed that semester, and we re-enrolled him in another school that was only three hours away in New Jersey. And after he'd been there about six weeks, at four o'clock in the morning, he called us. And we answered the phone, and he said, Dad, I have a question for you. He says, 
will a person go to heaven if he commits suicide? Did you share this with your wife? I got on another phone quickly. What did you What did you do when you got on the phone? I talked to him, and the nurse came out of me. I asked if he had a plan. He said yes, but he said he hadn't done it. And so I just read scripture. Hmm. And when he shared this with you, this was your first indication that there was something wrong. You had no idea prior to that that something was was not right. His having dropped out of uh, first year of college after getting straight A's in high school was a concern. But see, that's not unusual for kids to do that. What what else happened that made you think this is more serious than we originally thought? Well, it was that comment when he said that that morning. It then kind of clarified some of the other things that we saw. Mm. It was not as though we were expecting that, but we saw his uh, attitude towards school and what he wanted to do, which we just felt was rather strange, and we thought it was perhaps because of a very creative mind that he had, and so we were kind of guiding him in this. But when that he said that that morning, then we knew we had a crisis on our hand. But... You speak of his creative mind. Uh, I, I know that in talking to you earlier that uh, he really did have a creative mind. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that, say, prior to uh, this conversation that you had on the phone with him? He uh, wanted to pass his SATs with high scores so he could get into college. And uh, this is now we're looking back about uh, 35 years ago, uh, back when computers were still in the very elemental stage. And we're for those of you who can go that far back, basic language was about the only thing you learned in school. And he put together a program that would put in 3,000 words with their definitions because he didn't like the SAT scores that he had gotten the first time around, in, in especially in the English. And then he played those words back to him. In other words, a word come up and he would try to remember the definition and had it programmed to give him the right answer. So he had been 17, 18 years old when he did this? Right. And so he developed his own computer program to up his scores on the SATs. Right. Oh, that's that's extremely creative. And how old was he when this phone call took place? I believe he was 18. And so prior to that, you had no idea that he was struggling with, with mental illness? Not with mental illness, but Mother's Day that year when he was out in Pittsburgh in college, he didn't want me to visit. However, I had gone out and I had visited his older sister who was at a a nearby college, and I called him and said, I'd like to stop by on my way back to New Jersey. And he says, oh, I'm busy today. I've got study for something for coming up Monday. And I thought, I'm here. Why can't I see him? So that was a later looking back. I could see something was wrong. So I, I let it go. I didn't see him that day. And then he spent the summer at the school. He didn't come home for the summer. He was, I'm going to work on campus. And then by the end of summer, when he did come home, we just, we were worried about him. We were concerned about him, but we didn't know it was to this extent. Now, when he uh, took his life, how old was he? 33. So we have about 15 years of gap that we need to fill in here. Uh, tell us a little bit about those 15 years. The Christmas that he was at college when he came home, another kind of indication was that he was listening to the kind of music that would fill your mind with evil thoughts. And he was listening to them with his headphones in the house. And when I found out what he was listening to, I said, let's not listen to them in this house because you have brothers and sisters, younger brothers and sisters, and I don't believe that would be a good example. And he went along with that. But we were concerned for him spiritually. And so we were looking at what we felt was maybe a spiritual situation. So he gives us that call. Marion goes up to see him, and he said, I, I'll do all right. I think, what was it he told you, that he would be all right? He said he would be all right, that he, he wouldn't do anything to hurt himself. Why, why would he say that? Did he volunteer that, or did you? Because I was concerned about leaving him, going back home, and then coming back up, because he said it would take a day or so to get through the offices and, and get out of school and to turn in his books or whatever he had to do. And I was concerned about leaving him, but he was like wanting to be sure that, you know, he was going to be okay until I came back up the next day to pick him up and took some of his things home and talked to him 
I said, did anybody hurt you? Did anybody abuse you? And this is going on back. I just wanted to know if something had happened to him to make him give up. Marion, I'm imagining as a mother what you must have felt in that 24 hours of your beautiful, handsome young son, so full of promise, um, so creative, now really a stranger in front of you. And as a faith-based family, of course, I think the first place we go is there's something spiritual going on here. Uh, I think that's just a natural thing that, okay, he succumbed to the influences of that he was never introduced to in his childhood growing up. But then you somehow got to the point of realizing there's something more here. Um, how, how, what convinced you that there was something mentally not charging correctly in your son's life? He was showing fear. He was showing distrust, thought we were talking behind his back. He was scared, and I had never seen this in him. Of course, having gone through nursing school, I knew some of the things that were showing up as a symptom of mental illness, and but I never imagined it being him having it. So what did you do to diagnose this? First, we thought he should see a counselor. So we did that knowing that medicine wouldn't be given to him, but maybe we could see where he was at spiritually, and maybe that would take care of some of these questions he had. But then afterwards, he didn't want to go back. He didn't want to have any more of that. And he thought we were listening in and we were telling this man what to say to him and, and trying to get stuff out of him that he didn't want to share. Is How did you finally find a diagnosis that required medication? I scheduled him to see a psychiatrist and my husband took him to the first visit. So what I did was I took him to that first visit and I parked the car outside. He said, Dad, I'll go in by myself. So he goes in to the building. And about 15 minutes later, he comes out. And I said, wow, you're done already? He said, well, the doctor wasn't in. Hmm. Oh, okay. And again, still being new on the curve of what goes on with all this, I went, we got back in the car and we went home. Well, thankfully that evening, the psychiatrist, who we've never met yet, hmm. uh, called and he said, your son never showed up. Hmm. And apparently he had just gone into the little alcove or just the introduction part, never did go into the actual doctor's office and just stayed there and then came back out. And so then he said, I have an office near the hospital. He, I want him to come tomorrow. And so Marion took him up there. I, I took him up and there was no way he was going in by himself. I waited in the waiting room. He went back to the, see the doctor. And then the office said, the doctor wants to see you in the office with him. I said, okay. So I went back. And the doctor said, talk to your son. He knows he needs to sign himself in to the hospital now. And I want you to take him over there, see that he goes in. He's going to be admitted to the hospital, the psychiatric unit. Wasn't that far from where his office was. He shared with me some bipolar symptoms that he felt the, that our son had. And he said, I'm not going to write down a diagnosis. It's going to put a stigma on him because he's a smart young man. He should be able to get work and live out a good life. But there are tendencies of schizophrenia also showing. And so that was kind of just kept to us. It was never put on a diagnosis for him. You do not know what he talked about in that visit with that doctor that made that doctor come to this kind of a conclusion? Did, did he? No, he didn't divulge that. Yeah. You, you have to wonder whether or not uh, he talked about suicide to that doctor that uh, alarmed him enough to want him admitted right away. Do you, do you right, think that's I, the I case? I think so. Yeah. I think so. When you heard this, um, these terms, bipolar, schizophrenia, um, what was your first reaction when you heard that, John? Ignorance. I didn't know what that was. Hmm. Uh, we did know that he had showed Marion that first time when she went up to the college and he showed him a place where well, I could do this or I could do this, but he didn't carry through with what he was thinking because he thought he might fail. So we knew that something was wrong. But and, and as she said, we sent him to the counselor and now the doctor. And when he said this, well, then we started scrambling for the books to find out what it is we're dealing with. Did you find any help coming from the people that you expected would help you or did you keep this quiet? We told our church uh, session 
that there was an issue. We did not cover the fact that he was in the psychiatric unit, but we didn't know what we were dealing with. We, this was something new. What is this? And our two days or three days later, we visited him there, and he was angry that he was there. That was probably, for me, the worst moment up front where he showed great anger that he was even in that situation. What, when you say he showed great anger, what, what was that like? What did he say? I can't remember the words, but something to the effect that how could you put me here? Mm. Which, in reality, he signed himself in because he was an adult. Mm. But it was still our promoting that he was in there. So he'd have been in his early 20s by then or late teens? No, he's 18. He was 18. So an 18-year-old signs himself into a hospital, um, and now he's angry with you. It's our fault. Why did he say it was your fault? Did he feel as though you were abandoning him at that point, or what was the anger? Where was the anger directed? It was directed at us at having put him there. He just was furious, and we just almost had to back away. I'm not sure if the psychiatrist said, if you don't admit yourself, I might do it. So there may have been that pressure too, but we're the ones that took him there, so we're the ones that were the, the lead in trying to get him help. I think in his mental pain, he just wanted to find somebody to blame. So it's more than likely he was talking to that psychiatrist about suicide for that kind of alarm to go off for that psychiatrist. And so for the next 15 years, did you see this happen frequently where he would strike out at the two of you? Even though you're his caretakers, I mean, you're there, you're his safety, but did he blame you and his paranoia? You know, was that something you had to deal with on a regular basis? He was often very pleasant. And when he was on medication, he became quite civil, quite, you know, productive. But it was always like walking on eggshells, as people often describe dealing with family members that are going through struggles like this. You're afraid that something that you say is going to make them flip and make them be angry and make them be upset or make them walk away. I think I feared his leaving home. Because then you wouldn't be able to watch him. Yeah. Not knowing where he is would be horrible. Now, when your other kids were observing this, how old were they at the time? Judy would have been 16, 17. So we're talking maybe a, a 12th grader, a 10th grader, and an 8th grader. And were they exposed to this behavior of his, and did, what, did they have reactions to it? In one sense, Jonathan didn't change so much how he acted, because now looking back, we see a lot of what his habit patterns were and his reactions to things. Oh, those are, those are, now we see some of the characteristics that we as a parent would automatically say, well, he's just overactive and, and maybe super critical and stuff and maybe sort of like his dad who has an opinion and wants to say it and things of this sort. And so we saw this as an act of mind. And so the kids were already had been raised under him. It wasn't so much he changed his character. They were uh, used to his maybe quirkiness or, Yeah. What Can you give us a couple of examples, Marion, of that kind of behavior that now you look back and say, oh my, some signs were there, but at the time it just seemed like just who Jonathan is. His personality seemed more black and white than the other kids. It was like, it's this way or it's this way. And there's no in between, no gray. And that, I think, was a little hard sometimes because everybody just kind of slides along and gets along Jonathan, no. It was yes or no, nothing in between. Did this intensify as the next 15 years unfolded? Did you see more and more of this kind of behavior? And can you give us an example? The one in the early stages where he became, uh, shall I put it, very religious. And he would read the Bible for six hours a day and just absorb it all. And just And he did this for about six or seven months. And just be in his room, and that's all he would do, all he would do. There was a time when he stepped off the curb, and it, the light was red. And he was so so convinced that, that was wrong, he went to the police station and confessed that he had stepped into the street at a red light. Those were the kinds of things that we would see from him. Was that further into the illness? Yes, that would be in the first, probably the first three or four years. Mm -hmm. But at this early stage, it was really, we didn't know what to expect. And then he ended up cycling the other direction where, well, maybe we don't have to follow the rules quite as strictly. And we then we wondered if he was going too far the other way. Mm -hmm. There was that, that cycling that we were. So this is a 
I mean, what you're describing to me is a very stressful, challenging struggle for the two of you. How did this impact your marriage? I think I was getting less sleep because my ears were always alert for him. I could hear his bed rattle. His bedroom was right next to ours. We could hear the bed. You say you weren't getting sleep at night because you were listening for what was going on. I didn't realize I was really missing sleep, but I think I was just because I'd wake up tired. (laughs) And what were you listening for? Just that he was okay. Because you feared that he was going to do something. Because of when he came home from college with that suicide on his mind, with all the things that he would say and do, we never knew when that was going to happen. So as far as your marriage was concerned, it probably taxed you physically and emotionally as the result of not having sleep and worry. Right. But I, I think John and I became a good team, though. We, we didn't have friction with each other. We were on the same side. We were on a team to help him. And you both realized that. Yes. I would say that if anything, our marriage was strengthened because we were forced to deal with an issue that this is not what we, how do we deal with this? And so we were working together. It wasn't that we ended up having divergent opinions. Well, we do have those as any married couple has, but it wasn't as though it drove us apart. Now, as the man, I might be the ignorant one because sometimes the man goes, oh, things are fine while the wife is struggling. And so I could say that perhaps I, in hindsight, I didn't see the real stress that my wife was going through. I'd have to say in hindsight, I didn't see that. And that's probably a symptom of a man. Well, things are going fine. I don't hear her say anything. Everything must be okay. What would you uh, advise couples, parents who are in a similar situation to uh, be aware of or to do? Or are there practical things that you would say, you know, to get to really stay focused on your marriage and to be one, we recommend that you do this, this, and this. I think being a team was so important because there would be times when Jonathan, black and white again, and my husband, who was opinionated at times, would kind of get into a little discussion together, and I would show up around the corner by the door of the living room where Jonathan was on the couch and wasn't seeing me, and I'd be motioning to John, stop it. You know, lose this battle because I could see it was intensifying and Jonathan wouldn't lose. When I saw Marion's signal, I said, oh, Mm. and so we worked on that and it was a team, a team effort. Or if it was at the table, um, even as even as we're talking to you now, she might push her knee against mine to say, let's not go down that path. What about time for yourselves? Were you aware of the need? Did you feel that you needed to make sure you had time together or was that not even on your radar screen because it was impossible? No, it wasn't that we couldn't leave home and leave him home alone or anything like that. We, we still could go out and do things. And we, we trusted him. Mm-hmm. When we would leave the home, we would, uh, when we would go to meetings across the country for a week, he would take care of a lot of the things of the home. He was very good at keeping track of things. And, and there was a period of time then, in a glorious time of several years, he did go back into the psych ward for another three weeks, and he signed himself in because we had an all-night vigil with him. And in that morning, he said, Dad, I need to go back to the hospital. So he saw his need to have to go back. Was he on medication all this time? Yes, changing medication, and sometimes he would take himself off, and then we'd have to help him to get back on. About three years later, after this all started, he went in for another three weeks, and then he came out of that second time probably better fit and better understanding his own needs and ended up doing some glorious things uh, for about five years there. Such as? He uh, was working and earning some money, and he decided to move out of the house and get his own trailer at a trailer park near where we lived, about 10 miles away, and to take some responsibility for his life. Mm -hmm. And he got a job as an assistant at one of the local churches and was involved in the youth program, bought a basketball net for the youth group, set up yard sales to sell things for the church, uh, even for food. And for about five years as an assistant, he was just doing uh, a glorious, glorious job, Uh, was just doing wonderfully. And so we we were really excited that maybe we've crossed uh, 
that major uh, troubled area because he was maintaining his medicine. He had finances. He was, uh, it was really, it was really a great time. And then what happened? During that time, he informed us he was engaged. And we said, to who? Well, I met this girl online from another country and we're engaged. Well, now we're going, uh uh-oh, does this girl know what she's getting into? And does he know what he's getting into? So that was a sense that things still aren't right yet. Mm. That this very compulsive, all of a sudden, I'm going to do it, and he does it. And when he decides to do something, he's going to finish it. Mm. What? How is this going to turn out? So that was a, an alarming thing for us. Did this come during the end of that five-year period? So that's, that began, uh, that resurrected fears in both of you that, okay, we're going backwards now because of this bizarre decision on his part. Right. Yeah. And, and what did, what was your response to that when he said he was engaged? I was concerned about fallout. Should she say, I don't want to go through with this because I didn't know how, how emotionally he would handle that. I don't know whether she broke it off or he broke it off, but they did. And I think he was, going off his medicine already at that point because... But you didn't know that he had started coming off of his med? Not at that point. When, when did you realize that's what was happening? When he was talking about somebody bugging his car. Somebody put a bug in my car. I know they broke into my car and they did this. And he went all the way up to Trenton or somewhere up, not Trenton, but he went miles away to have a detective look at his car. So for five years, you didn't see this, any kind of behavior similar to this while he was working for the church. And, and this was toward the end of his working for the church. And, and then this bizarre behavior started up again, which more than likely caused you to think he's off of his medications. Yeah, right about that time, our past, his pastor that he was working for gave me a call at work. And he said, I'm at the trailer. I see him through the little window. His back is to me. And he won't answer the door. I don't know whether he's dead or alive. I jumped in my car. I you know, rode up to check it. I'm glad I had the key. I went in. I said, Jonathan. And he answered me. And I said, your pastor wants to talk with you. He says, I don't want to talk to him. And so I went, stepped out and said to the pastor, I'll stay with him. And I'll talk to you later. So he left. And I went back in. And I stayed for a few hours with Jonathan. And then we realized that he was going down with his emotions and and everything again. And how old was he at that point? 33, because it was the spring of that year in October when he took his life. um, One of the things that seems to keep coming up is the question of medication and that he was on the medication. He could see that it, he must have been able to see it was working but now he's coming off of the medication, not telling anybody. Did you have any conversations with him, uh, trying to convince him that he needs to be on it? And what was his response? I had many conversations with him because I was familiar with the medicines, the side effects, and he would tell me he didn't like the side effects, the things that made him feel funny or made him feel like it wasn't him. So he would then decide he didn't need it. He played doctor, and I would remind him what the doctor had told him, that each time he comes off his medicines, the illness in his brain was going to become worse, and he'd need higher doses each time to get back to the level where he's at. And that just didn't always seem to register with him. as It didn't do the job it was supposed to do in keeping him on the medicines. Well, you know, when I think about, it seems as though this happens a lot with people who have a mental illness and the medications are helpful, but they, medications have terrible side effects sometimes. I want to speak to the person who might be listening to this that is like Jonathan, who has been diagnosed with a mental illness. You're on medication, you hate the side effects, but you know that the medication helps you to function. This is not unlike any disease where we have to take medications, for instance, for heart disease. I have to take medications for heart problems, and the side effects are killers. I don't have the energy. I would love to come off of them. Diabetes, cancer, 
chemotherapy. In order to be healthy, sometimes we have to accept those limitations. And so I would say to you, if you're struggling with that and you are thinking, I want to come off, think more deeply about it and listen to what Marion has said. It's like any other illness. You need to stay on those medications. I want to take you to the night in which he took his life. Can you describe what happened that night? I'll go, I'll go back 24 hours. We had a great day on uh, Sunday. We came back from an evening time where he was just, just very upbeat. and It was about midnight, and we usually stay up late anyway. So he came by the living room and said, Dad, I'm planning to make some changes in my life. I was glad to hear that because we were kind of in a rut here. He was sitting on the couch all day or in his room all day and, and just not really doing anything. He had run out of money, so he couldn't really take his car anywhere. And In hindsight, I wish I'd have asked him, well, what are your plans? But I didn't ask that. Um, but I went to sleep and happy, okay, he's going to be doing that. The next day, I, I was a school teacher. I came back late in the afternoon, had to go to the New Jersey Department of Motor Vehicles to get something done with the car because it was out of date or something. And I saw him uh, in the living room, just passed by him and said, hi, John, and out the door I went. And then Marion came home later in the evening and we went to bed. Six o'clock in the morning, I, I woke up and I said to John, I haven't heard anything from the bedroom. And I said, well... When I came to bed last night, you didn't. I'm at two o'clock in the morning. You didn't even notice me, and I'm sad now that I said that because a mother's intuition, you just can't beat. So I got up and I went down the hallway and I knocked on his door and said, "Jonathan, no answer." I knocked again, and sometimes it'd be hard to wake him up. So I knocked loudly and I called his name. After the third time, I just opened the door. And I saw him laying on his bed with his back to me, white as a ghost, and he was gone. He was dead. Four words that, because I heard that, Jonathan, Jonathan, and she opened the door and said, Jonathan, and then those four words that. I said, John, he did it. Yeah. John, he did it. And I knew what she meant. I've never gotten out of bed and put on my trousers and shirt so fast. I don't know how I did it. And I passed her in the hallway as she went to dial 911, and I went in, and I saw what the evidences were, and I went over, and I grabbed his shoulder, and I shook it, and I said, Jonathan, but I could tell from the evidence he was not alive. And at that moment, there was a... It was so strange. It was a sense of relief. Of course, I was thinking about myself. And I didn't realize how tense I was about it to have that wave, that wave of relief just come over me. And then the next thing I thought was, what are people going to think of me as a leader in the community and a school teacher of having a son who takes his own life? So the first two things were about me. And I immediately confessed my saying those things. And then I walked into the bedroom and Time seems to slow down, and I was wondering why Marion hadn't finished dialing 911 yet. That's how fast all of these things happen. Well, tell him, tell him. John and I went downstairs to open the door for the police and to be ready for them to come in. I did not realize that because I didn't go to his room and hug him or, t- or touch him or anything, that when I saw him from the doorway, that was the last... The police said it was a crime scene, which that startled me. And so we couldn't go up and look again. I called school, and the secretary who takes messages answered the phone. I said, I won't be able to come in. She says, what is the reason? And I said, death in the family. I had talked to her because she had similar symptoms and had to be hospitalized. And she says, it's Jonathan. I said, yes. She started to cry. So we waited, and the police came. It seemed like it took them so long, but it was only less than a minute because we're a small town, so it didn't take them long to get there. They went right upstairs, and Marion and I were hugging and crying in the hallway, and we kept talking, and the other detectives came in, and it was hard. We just cried, and it was kind of a relief to cry. And then about a half hour in, the MTs outside called in and said, do you need us anymore? And I'm going... 
the gentleman is dead. Why do they need them? Why are they asking this question? I didn't realize they were thinking of us <laughs> and our needs. I said, oh, that's neat. They're thinking about us. And then we called the kids. And that was hard. Called each one of them. What were the reactions of your children? I think it was with knowledge. They knew that he had problems. We did not hide any of the things from them. And the medicine and the, the whole history and all of them had been out of the house for, what, almost 10 or 12 years. It may sound like a cruel question to ask, and I certainly don't want it to be a cruel question, but I know the people who are listening to this are thinking the same thing. Did you feel guilt when you found his body? I felt so helpless. Why didn't I find him? Why didn't I find him before he carried it out why didn't I check on him the night before like there would be times when I would go knock on his door when I didn't hear from him for a few hours say hey Jonathan we're having some hot dogs hamburgers or whatever and would you like to come down and eat with us and he would say no or I'm okay I've had enough to eat or but it was hearing him it was knowing he was okay in his room so why I didn't do it that night I don't know when we lost our son Mark and we went to the hospital because his was a car accident. The hardest part of that evening, of those several hours, was leaving the hospital and knowing we were going home without him. What did you do in the following hours that gave you comfort or hope or some sense of relief? What did you do? Something that immediately really helped us that morning with the police coming in and going out, two couples that were very close to came over. One of the couples had lost a brother when she was a young girl to an overdose. She had been through deep grief, and I had known this because I had spent a lot of time with her. And so it meant a lot for me to be there because she knew the pain I was going through. And they stayed with us until everything was done in the house and until our children started arriving. And we needed that. We did a lot of praying with people. They prayed for us. We were told to leave the house when they wanted to carry his body out. At first, we were like, well, we're okay. And they said, no, you leave the house. So our friends walked us around the corner. And we just kind of huddled together, and they prayed over us. At that point, I did something that a man doesn't want to do in public. Of course, I was shedding a lot of tears. But at that point, I knew his body was being taken out. And I wanted to see that. But I yelled. I mean, it was a loud cry that probably the neighborhood heard. So that was probably the first intense response in terms of outward. I mean, I've been crying all the all day, but that was a yowl. It even surprised me how deep this was. They said they didn't want us to remember that as the last time we saw him. And they were right. It's good that we didn't see that. You mentioned that you didn't realize that once the police were there, you wouldn't be allowed to go back into the room to be with your son. It's hard to describe for somebody who has never been through this, but how did the two of you reconcile that in your own hearts? Well, that whole week was so hard because we had to go to the funeral home and one of our daughters went with us and then to the florist and all these things we had to do. And we had a closed casket, so we weren't even going to see him ever again. And it was hard. Well, one of the reconciliations we did about three months before, the whole family had gathered, and the kids were able to have a good time. We got a group picture of all the kids, and so we cropped out the picture that we showed you earlier of when they last were together, and that was what was displayed on top of his casket, of his, of his smiling, because he had a sense of humor. He knew every joke. If you started a joke, he could, he actually ruined most of our jokes because he already knew the ending. Hey, John, have you heard this? And he would give us the ending of the joke even before we got to. He's that kind of encyclopedic mind. Uh, so we had a couple of pictures that we put up there to remember him by, and, of course, a board of pictures. And so that, as people came in, they saw that. But there's still that element, oh, we can't see him. So during the week, I said, look, when the funeral is over, let's uh, go to the house alone. And during this whole time, we kept his door closed as it normally would have been, and the light on, because he had the light on 24 hours a day because he was afraid of the dark. He had it on for 15 years. And we went up to the room, and I said, this is what we'll do, sweetheart. Because you wanted to touch him, we'll walk across the room, 
and I'll put my hand the spot where I last touched him, and you can put your hand on mine. I don't know what made me think of doing that, but I'm glad we did. And so Marion had that sense of touching him where I touched him last. Then we went to the door, we left it open, and we turned out the light. And then comes that yowl again. Oh. That was probably that moment in the whole history. It was the most intense 45 seconds. It wasn't long, but I mean, it was, it was a hard week. And we've cried many times since, and as we're doing now. But I think that was, that was a time of closure. We met it head on. Hmm. Uh, even uh, there's a poem that Marion wrote. She actually sat at the place where he took his life and wrote a poem that she put into the bulletin. Uh, at his funeral, and she dealt with his taking his own life and that he did this. So that's how we dealt. you have that poem? Yes, I do. I'll try to get through it. Two days after his death, thinking of people who can't go in a room or can't deal with the place where the death has happened, I went in, sat on the floor in his room with my Bible, and just thought about him, and this is what I wrote. I quoted uh, Psalm 22, 9 and 10. Yet thou art he who didst bring me forth from the womb. Thou didst make me trust when upon my mother's breast. Upon thee I was cast from birth. Thou hast been my God from my mother's womb. As I sit today for a few quiet moments in the room where you met Jesus two days ago, a multitude of memories sweep over me. I admired your sensitive heart for God and for anyone suffering. You put another's pain before your own. I prayed so often that God would heal your mind, and he did, in his own special way. Early Tuesday morning, the silence from your room gave this mother's heart the alarm that made me go check on you. But you were already home with Jesus. I weep because I miss you. Even as my heart is breaking, a pain I can't describe. I cling to Jesus, who is my anchor and stronghold. You are now set free from the disease that so troubled your mind, though you often told me you felt safe at home. You are now truly home and safe with Jesus for eternity. I was getting ready the morning of the funeral. Everybody, all the family, was in another motel room together, and I'd stayed back in our room for a few more minutes. I turned to Psalm 131, and in my Bible... Next to that psalm, I wrote these words, Day of Funeral, 12 noon, October 27, 2007. Thank you, Lord, for John Jr.'s life. He is now safely home with you. I give him back to you. You told me earlier that when it came time for the funeral, you did not hide the fact that Jonathan had taken his own life. Why did you make that decision? Because it was the truth. We didn't want to hide what had happened. And to hide it would mean to lie. And so the truth, when we immediately reported the truth, both to the school and to all those that were involved, and we scheduled the funeral, in one sense, we weren't looking forward to it. I don't know how many came, but probably three or 400. And for a small church of 80 members, to have three or 400 come from Philadelphia from uh, two or three hours away. Some couldn't get there in time. Professors of our daughters came to the funeral. We're glad we told the truth. We shouldn't hide the truth. We have nothing to fear from that. As you sit here today, five, six years later, what regrets do you have? I remember a time when he was eight or nine years old and we got home from church and we were just having a good time out in the snow. And I decided to drag him in the snow and have fun. And he got up crying. And I wonder, did that impact him? There was another time when I called him a fool, which, as you know, is a horrible thing to do, which I later repented of. And I wonder, did these impact him? And then the, the laws of the land say, well, we aren't going to look at your son unless he attempts to do something, and then we know it's serious. Well, the only time he attempted it was successful. And I wish I could have just dragged him to the psychologist's office and plopped him down and say, he thinks he's healed, but we know he's not. And sometimes wonder if I should have just grabbed his arm and taken him somewhere, but I'm not sure he would have gone, and there might have been a fight, and there might have been I don't know what, because we were walking on the eggshells. I think there's a tendency when we lose a loved one to think of all the bad things that we did, all the disappointing things that we did, all the wrong words that came out of our mouths, and we relive all of those. 
But over the course of time, those memories turn into good memories. You start remembering the good things and the fun times. And it seems to me you you guys are at the stage where you're still remembering what could have been, what should have been, what ought to have been, and remembering the, the things that you did that were disappointing. And there's a, there's a sense in which survivors beat themselves. What advice would you give to someone who's listening to this, whose child or loved one just took their life and they're sitting there wallowing in tremendous guilt? What would you say? First of all, I think I would just sit there with them and cry with them. Sometimes you don't need to say words. It meant a lot to me to have friends just sit with me. What did your friends do when they sat with you? They may have been silently praying, but they were weeping with me. Like Job's friends, when they came to him, they said nothing, and they got into trouble when they started to talk. (laughs) (laughs) They started hurting the people, hurting Job when they started rationalizing what sins he committed that caused his suffering. Uh, Do you feel in any sense accused by what you did or didn't do that caused your son to take his life? No, I don't. I feel that we did what we could do. And if anything, we might be upset with some of the laws of the land um, that you can't commit somebody psychiatric care unless they say they want to be admitted because sometimes they don't know they need to be admitted that was a frustration for me as a mother Marion I am the daughter of one of your best friends and I trust you and I you know my life you know that I have struggled for 15 years with this mental illness I can't stand the side effects from the medication anymore. I see what my parents are going through. I don't want to hurt them anymore. They would be better off without me. What's it been like for you? Isn't it better for you that Jonathan isn't here? No, it's been a struggle. It's been pain that I as a mother don't want any other mother to go through. And you may think it's a relief to your family but it's only the beginning of the sorrow and grief that they're going to experience. It's never better. But I know my mother has suffered so much taking care of me. I know she worries about me all the time, and I don't want her to have to worry anymore. You may think that your mother's not going to worry anymore, but that worry is going to be replaced with grief and guilt. It's never a better thing. Your mother would rather have you suffering and some pain and, and here than to have to live with taking your life in your own hands. Mary and I was very surprised when I learned how quickly you went back to work because it seemed to me that you would need more time to just grieve and process and do all those things. One of the things that I know for myself as a grieving mother is that I want to see something good. I want God to redeem the pain somehow. And sometimes that requires, well, I think all the time it requires dying to self. It was probably good for you to go back to work, but you had to die to self to be able to go back to work. So tell our listeners about that first week and especially the one story that you shared with us. I'm the director of a pregnancy center and I deal with a lot of girls that are in crisis. And here I'm in crisis. And... I went back the following week or a week after the funeral. And one of the first girls I had was a girl that was thinking about abortion. And she was in a lot of pain, turmoil, making a decision like this. And we talked and we shared. And one of the things I left her with was whether your child is two months in the womb, which is about where she was, Two years or 33, you're a mother and you will always remember that child. She looked at me. She didn't know what I had just gone through. And so I shared a little bit about our son's death. Well, she left that day. I didn't know. I didn't hear from her. About eight or nine months later, she comes in with a little baby in her arms 
And she looks at me and she says, I have no regrets. And she repeated it. And I'm trying to think, which girl, uh, what does she mean? I said, what do you mean by that? And she said, you talked to me and you said whether my baby's two months, two years, or 33, I'll always be a mother. And she said, I went home and I canceled my abortion appointment. And this is my baby boy and I love him. In a very real sense of the word, your son's legacy lives in that child. And that baby is the fruit of how God is redeeming this pain and will continue to redeem the pain. We see marking ministries in the same light that we have been able to touch the lives of thousands of people through the resources that we produce. And I would much rather have my son back. And I know my wife would much rather have her son back. But in God's sovereign plan, he has ordained that this would take place. And somehow or another, as parents, we want to redeem something very ugly into something very beautiful. As the scripture says, God majors in bringing beauty out of ashes. You've both mentioned specifically several times during this interview, your faith, your church, your Bible, your son's fascination with the scriptures, etc. I want you to get into this a little bit more because I think it's important for our listeners to understand that we are not the type of people who say, come to Jesus and everything's fine. Come to Jesus and everything's okay. Come to Jesus and life is sweet. Life is easy. You are Christian parents. You raised your children in a Christian home, in a Christian church, and yet you're sitting before us as people who have suffered great grief and great pain. Jesus and his grace is not necessarily an anesthetic. Jesus and his grace and, and his mercy are not something that takes the pain away. In fact, the scripture actually teaches us that when we come to Christ, that is when we are the greatest threat to Satan, and he is sure to unleash the kitchen sink at us. And Jesus talked about bearing a cross, taking up a cross, and in the first century culture to even mention the cross or a cross, just brought the images of excruciating pain. And so we have learned over the years, Sharon and I, at least we've learned this through our own trials, is that God's grace is not an anesthetic, that somehow he sustains us through the fire. The three friends of Daniel were thrown into the fiery pit, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and, and there was a fourth one in that pit, like unto the scripture says, the Son of Man, which is very clearly Christ. And so they had to go through the fire, but God took the heat out so that they could go through the fire. I want you to take a moment and talk about your faith and talk about how your faith has sustained you through what is obviously a very painful process that you're going through right now. Grief is hard work. It's not something that just disappears. Uh, I've described it as a runaway train. You're sitting there tied to the tracks. You see it coming. You know you're going to get hit. You wince. You take a deep breath and the train runs over you. And you don't know where it came from, but there it is. And smack, that grief hits you. And suddenly you're down into the pit of despair. Jesus knew that. He knew that that kind of grief is what death is all about. How does your faith sustain you? through this. Tell us a little bit about your personal relationship with Christ. After we found him that night, I wept like I'd never wept before. It hurt. It physically hurt. I didn't know pain could be that strong in grief, but I turned to the Psalms. It's where I found comfort in reading the Psalms that night. Just randomly went through various Psalms, and I had comfort. Marion, I I'm going to be that daughter again, speaking as that daughter who's troubled. I admire you so much, and your faith seems so real and so strong, but I don't understand how can I have that same faith in my own life? Because as someone who is ill, I know that I'm always going to struggle with this. How can I know Jesus the way you know him? It's only through the forgiveness that he gives and putting your faith and trust in Jesus. 
is the only way we can have relief from our suffering, whatever the illness might be in our life, whatever the grief is in our life. All these difficulties, the storms in life, when you think the storm is going to end and it just keeps raining, like that I'll praise you in the storm song. Every time I hear it, I cry. But that's where our hope is. It's in Jesus. If it wasn't in Jesus, I don't know how I would have been able to get through that time. But how how can I know him the way that you know him? I want to know him. Just cry out to him. Lay your heart out to him. He already knows it. Jesus is described in the scriptures uh, in the prophet Isaiah as the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And the prophet told us that he would become the Messiah who would bear in himself all of the temptations that we've had in our lives. And all of the sorrow and all of the pain was poured onto Christ on that cross for us so that he could be acquainted with our grief. Jesus knew what it was like to grieve. Imagine his mother at the foot of the cross, watching her son not having his life taken from him, but freely giving his life. And she knew that. She knew as she stood there and looked up into his eyes and horrible, horrible, horrible pain he was going through, that no man, she heard him say many times, takes my life. I lay it down freely. And the reason he did that was so that we could know a Savior who knows pain, who knows grief, who knows heartache. And to be children of that kind of a Savior is not plastic Christianity. That's not Christianity the way most people view us. They think that Jesus is this great panacea that we never experience pain. We go around praising the Lord and saying, thank you, God, for all the pain that I'm bearing. No, that's not the Savior we serve. The Savior we serve has borne our sorrows. He's carried our pain. He's taken our sins. Suicide is not the unforgivable sin. The only unforgivable sin is not trusting Christ as your Savior. Amen. When I look at my life and the Bible says, have you ever told a lie? I said, yes, I've told a lie. Revelation says I'm bound for hellfire. And I don't have any recourse but to throw my sins upon Christ. Say, Christ, take my sin. You've borne it on the cross. You bore hell on the cross for me. And now as I am a Christian, why would I want to do anything against him? Because a lie or any other of the commandments are equally in God's eyes, I deserve hellfire. But thankfully, Jesus took that for me. And so we can now, before God, be declared righteous. But now that I have professed to be a Christian, I got to act like it. And boy, that's where, the, <laughs> that's where we run into the wall all the time. And regardless of what commandment we break, we can come to him and ask for forgiveness, and he will forgive us. Mark Inc. Ministries exist for the purpose of offering help and hope to hurting people. And what is most important to us is that you are able to identify with the pain and the sorrow you have heard here today and feel what these parents are feeling and experience, at least to a degree, some of the hurt that's in their hearts right now. And yet they possess a faith in a Savior who went to a cross and gave his life so that they could have life, so that they could have hope that they will see their son one day again. And that is not an easy faith. That is a faith that requires uh, the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. He had to go to that cross alone. He had to bear our sins alone. You see, God became a man. And that man was Jesus Christ. And he gave his life to take on himself the equivalent of an eternity in hell for our sins. If you do not know this Savior, Mark Inc. Ministries exist for the purpose of helping you to discover him. We would love to be of help to you. If you would take just a moment and tell us what this resource means to you by visiting our website at markinc.com. Org, that's M-A-R-K-I-N-C dot org. We would love to hear from you.
You have been listening to a resource produced by Mark Inc. Ministries. Visit Mark Inc. Ministries online at markinc.org where you will find other free resources that address difficult life crises such as loss of a loved one, dealing with breast cancer, sexual abuse, adultery, and so much more. For a complete listing of our free resources, visit our website at markinc.org. If this resource has been helpful to you, we would love to hear from you. Our email address is info at markinc.org. You can also contact us by mail at 2880 Summit Bridge Road in Bear, Delaware, 19701. You can call us at 877-627-5462. That number again is 877-MARK-INC.